I don't know if you've noticed, I am OCD. This has to be lined up exactly with this right here every Sunday. So if anyone preaches here and I don't have it lined up, so that's for free. So we are continuing our study in the book of 1 Samuel, and this has been an incredible study as we've looked at how God took the people of Israel and he, he allowed them to have a king, even though he told them, you don't want a king, you shouldn't have a king, but he allowed them to have a king. And God's purposes were at work in that. And two weeks ago, uh, we took a look at that idea that there is no new king, there's no new rebellion, and there's no new principle. That even when Israel thought that they were getting a new king, they didn't get a new king. This, the king, the one true king of Israel was still their king. They got an addition. They got a man who would sit on a throne, a man who would make, make some laws, do some things, do some kingly things. But yet, what God told the people of Israel is that if you and your king fear and obey the Lord, it will go well with you. But if you and your king... Continue to do what is wicked, you and your king will be swept away. And so we laid this, laid this out for them. And here's where we are today is the follow-up to what happened, which we saw last week, which was Saul was removed. Saul was that very king who stood in the presence of all the people before Samuel and in the presence of God and heard the same words that Samuel said to all the other people when Samuel was saying to the people, if you and your king Saul was there, remember, and God sent a storm and it rocked them, it shocked them, it woke them up. And they said, please pray for us so that we don't die. And they confessed their sins and repented. And Samuel admonished them and he exhorted them after he comforted them. But that, that very same warning was the warning that, that, that Saul did not, here, um, because what we saw in verse 15, excuse me, in chapter 15, remember it says that he set up a monument to himself. He did all of these things. He kept, he kept all the good spoil from war when God said, do not do that. And he tried to, tried to pass it off as, no, actually, I didn't do it, but the people did it, but they did it, and they did what was right because what they're actually going to do with all of this good stuff is they're actually going to offer it as a sacrifice to you. And what we saw is that this isn't, this isn't right, that we can't believe that we can give something to God that, we, that, 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 is, that is honoring to him while at the same time living in open rebellion to him. And what we saw was that the scripture is clear about this, that sacrifices is nothing if we are doing that in open rebellion. And it says that obedience is better than sacrifice, to obey is better than to sacrifice. And so what we did was we took a look at that and said that the only thing that we have to give God is our rebellion. Because if we think that we are giving God any great service, if we're giving him our time, our money, our talents, or anything else, if we think that we are giving to God anything while at the same time actively living in rebellion, we've got to repent of that because we are trying to offer sacrifice while we're disobedient. And God isn't interested in our sacrifices if at our heart's level we are disobeying him. And so I pray that the word this morning both challenges and encourages you. 
Um, because we need to understand that God measures the heart. And that's what we're going to look at today in this idea of an inside look that, that under God's power, he's the one who gives us the strength to carry out his will. And that even when things appear healthy from the outside, they may not be well. Um, there's businesses I mean, how many of us can remember Enron and remember some of these other things? It looks healthy. It looks really good. looks powerful. looks successful. But inside, it's rotten and it's dying. How many churches are there that on the outside look healthy, but the inside is rotten? So we must not be fooled with appearances, for the Lord does not care for appearances. He cares for where our hearts are, and we're going to see that this morning. And so we've got to be clear on this matter that we've got to see that sometimes things appear healthy from the outside, but they may not be well. And our task is to make sure that our hearts and the work that we do, that there's consistency between outward appearances and inward health, that the work that we do, the things that we're committed to, that there should be consistency between the appearances that are outwardly and the health that is inward, all right? And so the major doctrine that I want to defend this morning is that godliness and holy anointing are superior to appearances and worldly approval. Godliness and holy anointing are superior to appearances and worldly approval. Because what we have to see is we've got to be concerned with true godliness and, and his anointing rather than the appearances uh, that are out there and, and, and man's approval. And so often we get this backwards. We think what's really important is that I'm accepted by the people that I live with, that I'm accepted by the people that I work with, that I'm, that I'm accepted by the world, generally speaking. But what we see time and time again throughout Scripture, and we see it today, is that our first concern must be with true godliness, even if that costs us the approval of man. So I want to ask you a question before we really jump into our three stops this morning. Have you ever been fooled by appearances? Have you ever been fooled by appearances? Yeah. Isn't that a weird thing? Isn't that the thing where you're like, ah, oh, like it's just, didn't see that coming. You kind of feel taken, right? I can remember when I was probably about 13 years old and uh, there was a library across the shop from my grandpa's uh, shop and uh, we would always go to that library. I lived there. Um, I mean, we knew that place so well. Even in my mind's eye, uh, I, can, I, I can navigate every nook and cranny of that library just because we lived there. But one day I went in there, and my sister had gone over there before me. And my sister was uh, a year and a half younger than me, and she had already gone over there. And so I was like, I'll catch up with you guys in a second. So I went in there, and I go up and enter the library. And if you went straight ahead, there was these, like, old computers that you could get on and, like, look up where books were and so on and so forth. So my sister's at one of those, and she's messing around. I'm like, what is she doing on that? What are you like, is she really using this system? And uh, so I'm like, I'm going to scare her. So I, I snuck up on her super quiet, and then I hit her hard from behind. I mean, just like a whiplash, you know, that's what brothers do to sisters kind of thing. And she turned around, and it wasn't my sister. <laughs> and that girl looked so horrified, and I'm like, oh, man, I, I hit her hard. And I, what do you do? Like, what do you say? I was like, oh. And she ran. She ran away from me. I mean, I couldn't even stop and explain. Like, it was, it was just done. And I'm like, I think I'm leaving. You know, like, I'm gone. But that, that's, a, that's a clear image to me where, where, where 
I was fooled by appearances from behind. She looked just like my sister, and she wasn't. So we must not be fooled by appearances because God isn't. Um, the first stop we're going to take a look at is a theological principle that God is glorified in our weakness. Then we're going to take a look at the goal of godliness, and then we're going to end with our third stop, the awe of anointing. So the theological principle that God is glorified in our weakness, two, the goal of godliness, and three, the awe of anointing. So take a look here. Uh, this, this is an interesting narrative, right? It says that this is where Samuel is being told to go and stop grieving over Saul. It says, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I provided for myself a king among his sons. And so God has this plan. Uh, what, what, what had happened was that the people had chosen Saul. Remember that? Samuel said that this is the king that you have chosen um, and the king that you have desired. But then also in the parallel thought that Samuel also said, but this is the king that God has set over you. So there's that parallel line that the men had chosen it, but God still set Saul over them. But this time around, God is the one who's saying, I am providing for myself. It says, for I provided for myself a king from his sons. And so God has, has this picture. Imagine this. This is, this is David's family doing whatever they did. And for all eternity, God had it in his mind that he would raise up this little guy named David to be somebody. Yet their family had no idea. It wasn't like at their birth, uh, at the birth of, of David, that, that his parents said, this is, this is going to be the true king of Israel. Then no, one, no one said that this is going to be uh, the guy who's going to do all of these things. No one thought in their minds that, hey, this, this person is going to write so many of the Psalms that we read. No one had that in their mind. And you see certain instances where there were particular people where God did reveal to the parents that this person would be something special. Remember clearly, Mary got an inside view that you will have a son and his son will be named Jesus, right? And that was a really interesting thing. So when he was born, she wasn't like, hmm, I don't know. She knew. Elizabeth, when John the Baptist was to be born to her, she knew, right? There was no surprise. And it, and it said that John the Baptist was, was with the Holy Spirit. He had the Holy Spirit indwelling him from his birth. What is that about? They knew he had a special task. Here's David, completely obscure. No, no idea that this is his lot in life. And so what we have to recognize here clearly is that God is glorified in our weakness. And, and, and this is a beautiful image that God has chosen something weak to bring himself glory. He says, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. This isn't some royal family that's in some high position somewhere that God says, hmm, let me go, let me go see if they're available. These are, these are obscure people doing normal people stuff. And, and, and I'm reminded of Hannah's song, which is back in, in chapter 2, of 1 Samuel. And if you remember, the context was that she was heartbroken over not being able to have a child. And, and, and what she had said was that she would give her son, Samuel, to the Lord. And when 
she did. She had this song in chapter 2. And it says, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. It goes on this beautiful stuff that she unpacks. But if you take a look at that, verse 7, The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. Check out verse 8. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. I can, I can see this clearly. This is exactly what is happening. That something weak God has chosen to glorify himself by. And take a look at this. So keep, keep, keep going on in the narrative, right? So in verse 6, it says, And when he came, he looked at Eliab, right? And, and, and he thought to himself, hmm, maybe him, right? But no. God's, God says no. But, but go on a little further. In, in verse 10, And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, well, you know, I can, well, there remains yet the youngest. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him. For we will not sit down till he comes here. How far, I don't know how far away he was. Hopefully it was quick, right? That's that kind of thing when you need something done right now. It's like, yeah, I'll, I'll shoot you that email later. No, I'll stay on the line. Hit, I'll, I'll stay on the line until you get it to me. Like, we're not going to hang up until you get me what I need. We're not going to sit down until this boy is here. And so it's this crazy thought that, that, that David was so weak and insignificant that he wasn't even considered to be brought to this banquet. He wasn't even considered to be present. So keep that in your mind. But I'm also reminded of, of, of the beautiful verse in 1 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul says, Therefore I boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. But as we see clearly that God provides, for he says, I have provided for myself a king. And Jesse says in verse 11, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. So in Jesse's mind, He's thinking, hmm, there's something going to happen here today, and one of my sons is going to be chosen. We don't know. We don't get an inside look into what, you know, it's, it's, it's not super clear to us that Samuel, um, you know, sent a letter and said, hey, I'm going to come, and I'm going to choose one of your sons to be a king. We have no idea what happened. Samuel shows up. They bring out the boys, and, and none of them are selected, and Samuel saying that, what's the deal? Is there not one more? And so Samuel says to Jesse, Where, what's going on here? And he says, yes. And so send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes. So I'm reminded of this principle. It's been true in my own life, and I see it clearly in Scripture, that those who will be used by God are first humbled by God. And it's really interesting when you look throughout the history of the church even, that those who God chooses to be, to be titans in the faith usually are weak things. God is glorified 
in our weakness. God has very little use for our own self-reliance. He has very little use for our own puffed up thoughts of our talents and our abilities. What he has use for is our dependence upon him. And he is glorified in our dependence upon him. And if we think that there's anything that we have got to do for God, lest he be missing out on our service, we've got it wrong. That's not to negate from that the fact that we are called and we've been equipped to do work that God has prepared for us in advance, but the first starting place is to say, God, you don't need me, but you've chosen to use me. And sometimes people say, well, I'm too old to come to Christ, or I've done too many other things to come to Christ, and how could he use me if I've messed up my life this much? If I've lived in sin, if I've done this, this, or this, then I can't be used by God. What we're literally saying is, God, if I was a little better, I could serve you a little better. If I was a little more moral, if I had a little bit better track record, I could serve you better. And don't miss this. This isn't to say, go live however you want to and try as hard as you can to blow your life up so that God may glorify more. That's false. That's false. But the life you've lived thus far does not disqualify you from being used by God when you find your salvation purely in the work of Christ because you see that you are saved by grace and it is grace that you preach. You don't preach that you were just so good that God saw something in you worth saving. You don't preach that God needed someone with your caliber of talents. Therefore, God rightly chose you to do the job. False. He chose you because he's glorified in weak things. So we start there. Those who will be used by God are first humbled by God. And I've shared this story before, and I'm going to share it again. That God used this story in Martin Lloyd-Jones' life, and it's impacted me. That There was this young preacher coming up, I believe it was in England, and all these preachers were getting around and talking about him. And he was this young guy who was just tearing it up. And they are like, oh, man, he's going to do some amazing things for the kingdom. And I was like, yeah, yeah. And Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was another young preacher, he's kind of sitting there listening to these older guys and just learning, just listening. And then one of them spoke up and said, yeah, but he hasn't been humbled yet. And they all, the whole, ooh, mm, oof. And Lloyd-Jones said, wow, there's something to that. And what he recognized, and he coined this, 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 this phrase, but he recognized this truth. He says, you know how you can tell if someone's had a true encounter with God? They walk with a limp. I was like, man, that is true. You walk with a limp just as Jacob wrestled with God. Afterwards, he was wounded and walked with a limp in humility. We who wrestle with God will walk with a limp because it's not in our own strength. So before we can be expected to be used by God, we must be first humbled by God. And the gospel, believe it or not, is a very humbling thing. 
because it says to us that we are sinners. It says to us that we are helpless and we are inadequate. Yet Christ has chosen to save us. And what it literally means is that we have been purchased and that we are not our own. The scripture says that you are not your own for you were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. So you start from the premise that if I'm not owned by myself, but I'm owned by another, if I'm a doulos, if I'm a slave, there's nothing the master can't ask of me. There's nothing that the master can't demand of me because I am weak before him, having nothing to offer to say that I can barter with you, but I am owned by you. But God is glorified in our weakness. That's a theological principle that I see here with David being this young little guy who's not even worth inviting to the feast. He was tasked with this low job of looking after the sheep. But isn't there irony in this that he would have this royal job of a king but wasn't very different than his low job of a shepherd? He's going to do the same kind of work. Same kind of work. He'd be known by God as someone who would lead his people, um, but he would know what it was like to be a lowly shepherd. And wherever you are in your life and in your walk with God and as he's using you, never forget the lowly place from which you came. And I think that'll, be, that'll, that'll do us good to remind ourselves of the lowly place from which we came. Yes. Remind yourself constantly that you are saved by grace. Yes. But now let's move on to our second stop. The goal of godliness. Take a look at verse 7. It says, do not look on his appearance or on his height. Do you see that? Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Do you see that? It says, man looks on the outward appearances, but the Lord looks on the heart. I don't know what God saw when he looked at the heart of both Eliab and young David. I don't know. But it clearly says that he rejected Eliab and he accepts David. Why? We don't know other than the heart. And so it's worth considering um, what, what is it with this heart thing? What's, what's going on? Um, what, what was it that God uh, found pleasing and acceptable in David that he didn't find pleasing and acceptable in the heart of Eliab? Now, this is not to contradict the point that he is glorified in weak things because it wasn't the self-produced moralness, the self-righteousness that David produced and that God said, oh, I like him because he's produced some holiness or righteousness in and of himself that I like. Eliab hasn't been able to do that, but David has. No, that's not, that's not true at all. Because actually what we see is if we're going to count moral points, I don't know. I, we don't get any look in here, but for, for, from silence, we could argue that Eliab may have been better. Just arguing from silence, that's not a good logical thing, but there's, there's something there. But if we argue from what we do know, how does David look, morally speaking? David doesn't look good at all. Go down the list of David. David, let's talk about David's flaws for a second. That's, that's real comfortable, right? Let's talk about our problems. Let's talk about how bad other people are. I have nothing to say other than commentary on the narrative. This isn't us saying we're better than David. This is saying 
look at David from a moral perspective and see the gospel in it. Because what David is, is a man whose hands are covered in blood. He was a warrior who killed lots of people. Do you get that? This guy took the life of many men. But not only that, there can be a rightness in that and obeying God. Okay, so set that there. But then we know clearly that he took another man's wife, had an illegitimate child with her, and then developed a plot to have that man murdered. So if we're counting moral points, he's not looking good. He's in debt. So it wasn't God looking and saying, oh, look at David, how good David will be. Therefore, I will choose him because he would honor me. If we use the same logic we use today on David, David would have never been chosen. Because if you said, let me look into the future and see all the messed up things that you are going to do. If we did that to any one of us, we would be in trouble, would we not? But think, if someone on the day of David's anointing, the day that he's chosen, okay, so that's like having a pastor who's going to be chosen to, to lead a church, going to, you know, think analogously here, and you said, but let me look forward to what in the world this person will ever do. That's a tough sell, isn't it? And I'm not sitting here saying you shouldn't take that seriously and you shouldn't look at that. Obviously, there's a lot there we've got to look at. But the heart of the matter is God did not choose David because he saw he would perform. He chose David for his own purposes in spite of David's failures that God wasn't surprised by. God saw it before it happened. God anointed him before it happened, knowing it would happen. God saved you knowing what you had done as well as what you will do. He's not surprised. God looks not on the outward appearances, but he looks on the heart, verse 7. So there's three things I want to put in your heart and mind this morning. When we're talking about the goal of godliness, first, the goal of godliness is to have a heart that loves and admires God. As messed up as David's life was in many ways, you cannot accuse him of not loving and admiring God. He loved and admired his God. And that's the call for believers. And I believe, you want to know how you tell if someone's saved? Do they love and admire God? Because we can get shipwrecked and derailed all sorts of places. And we can't measure and say, oh, as long as you don't commit that sin or that sin, or as long as you don't live in sin for this amount of time, you can't do that. But we ought to be about fruit checking in a sense that the scripture tells us that there should be a difference. There should be a change. The old has passed away and the new has come. What's the heart of the new is that our hearts are new. And a heart that used to hate God and that was opposed to God is now a heart that loves and admires God. Even if you struggle on your belly every day of your life, crawling out of your sinful temptations, narrowly escaping death and sometimes being overcome by it, even in those moments, don't ask yourself, 
Am I saved because I did this? Ask yourself, am I saved because I grieve over this? Because I know it grieves my Father who I love and admire. That is what leads us out of it. That is what keeps us out of it the next time. Because he changes our hearts. And we've said that before. Don't ask necessarily to stop sinning. That's good. Ask that you would stop enjoying the sin which grieves the Father. Two, the goal of godliness is to have a heart that desires to please the Lord. Remembering that obedience is better than sacrifice. Is that your heart's desire? Is your heart's desire to please the Lord because you want to know how to head to godliness? Have that as your desire. To ask yourself, am I living my life aimed at this goal of pleasing God? In our little study, Weaknesses the Ways, we've been doing on Sunday nights, that's one of the questions that, that Packer uh, really puts forth is, is, is it our goal? And it should be the goal of a Christian to, to bring pleasure to Christ. So godliness is to have a heart that desires to please the Lord, remembering that obedience is better than sacrifice. And three, the goal of godliness is to have a heart that longs to see God exalted and praised. Do you long to see God, his name exalted, and to see him praised? Man, I pray that our, I pray that our lives are truly lives that bring him glory. And I pray that when we sing songs that they're not empty, because it's possible to sing empty dead songs. It's possible to think more about whether or not you're harmonizing with the person next to you versus praising and exalting the God of the universe. Do you get that? Let our hearts be longing to see God exalted and God praised. I believe that this is what heart David had, and I believe that this is what God saw when he looked at David. He saw that he'd be a messed up guy who would do all sorts of bad things, yet his heart was a heart that was godly. So that's the goal is for us to have godly hearts as well. And then let's finish up with our third stop. The awe of anointing. Now look at this. It says um, in verse, is it 12? And he sent and brought him in, and now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. All right. So verse 6, Eliab came out, and Saul, Samuel said, Surely the Lord is... The Lord's anointed is before him, right? He thought, here's this big, you know, good-looking guy. And God says, nope, you're looking at the outward appearance. So we learn from that that we can't put all of our stock in outward appearances because the outward appearance may be um, deceptive. But here's something interesting for you beautiful people out there. (laughs) Now, he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. Okay, so... God doesn't choose you because you're beautiful, but just because you are beautiful doesn't mean you can't be used by God, okay? 
So the goal isn't to go and make yourself as ugly as sin, right? And be like, unless I'm terrible, right? Unless I should be hidden, uh, God can't use me. That's not the point. Vanity is always wrong, but we got a beautiful guy. Like it says, he's beautiful. He's ruddy and, and beautiful eyes and was handsome. And God still chose him. Isn't that interesting? Eliab gets thrown out based on that, but he's, here's this guy saying, eh, that's part of what, he, what, what, what was there. But it wasn't what God looked at. He looked at his heart. So you actually had two good-looking guys. Do you see that? The contrast wasn't a good-looking guy and a not-so-good-looking guy who had a pure heart. He had two good-looking guys, and one of them had a godly heart. Isn't that interesting? So we have to see that, that the awe of anointing belongs to God. And, 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 and so Samuel gets up and, and, and took the oil and anointed him in the midst of his brother. So he does it publicly. And then check this out in verse 13, 13. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So remember, everything that's going to come after this, remember this. So it's easy for us to see that the Spirit of the Lord was with David when he slays Goliath next week. It's easy to see, isn't it? It's easy to see that the Spirit of the Lord was with David when he's writing these psalms, when he's writing these praises to God, when he's doing all these things and the beautiful work for the Lord. But it's hard for us to see that the Spirit of the Lord was with David in his sin. He didn't leave him. He didn't forsake him, even when he was in his sin. So we have to learn from that, that even when we are in sin, we must repent, but we must not think that God has left us or forsaken us. Just as Samuel told the people of Israel, back whenever they were confessing their sin again, he told them that it would be wrong for me to stop praying for you. Far be it from me to do that. Far be it from me to stop praying for you, and I will not stop teaching you in the way of righteousness. And then he said, and the Lord is faithful and will not leave you either. So even in Israel's sin, God did not leave them. Even when David sinned, his spirit was upon him. And even when you sin, you are not forsaken by God. So we must recognize that all of God's anointing, when the insignificant yet godly men and women of the world are chosen by God, anointed with the power of God and filled with the spirit of God, Christ will be exalted. I'm going to read that to you again. Listen. We must recognize the awe of God's anointing when the insignificant, that's you and me, yet godly men and women of the world are chosen by God, anointed with the power of God, and filled with the Spirit of God, Christ will be exalted. That's not scripture. That's my words, but I believe it's true. The goal is to exalt Christ. How does it happen? It happens through God choosing to use weak things who are anointed and filled with his spirit. Now you may say, Rob, no, only kings get anointed. Take a look with me. 1 John 
2.20 says, But you have been anointed by the Holy One. 2 Corinthians 1.20-22 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. And who has also put His seal on us and giving us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. When you receive the Spirit of God, when you trust in Christ for the salvation of your soul, you are anointed. You are filled with the Spirit of God. There's nothing left. There's nothing left to receive. There's no greater power to be had. There's no greater identity to be received. You are anointed and filled with the Spirit of God for the purpose of glorifying and exalting the name of Jesus Christ. So as we wrap up this morning, I ask you to stand with me. Let us pray. Father, I pray that it's true of each of us that we have in our hearts the Spirit of God dwelling and sanctifying us for your glory. God, may we be concerned with true godliness and your anointing rather than appearances and man's approval. May we see the truth that is clear in Scripture that those who will be used by God are first humbled by God. May we be comfortable in seeing ourselves as weak things and that you are glorified in our weakness. Father, may our hearts be filled with the Spirit of God. Father, as we reflect on our own weakness and dependence upon Christ, Father, I pray that we are able to reflect upon our own pursuits of godliness and ask ourselves what we find there. If we don't find where godliness is, also humility and a love for God and a desire to see you exalted and praised, Father. Is there not also a deep gratitude for the mercy you have shown us and your kindness and the love of Christ manifest through the love and indwelling and continuous work of the Spirit? May we find that there, Father. May we exalt Christ with hearts like this. Church, I pray that God would see in our hearts what he saw in David's heart even though you and I we like David we fall and grieve the Lord our true heart's desire is to love and obey God and to see him lifted high and to hear his message of mercy proclaimed I pray that for us this morning so Father may that be true may we preach the gospel to ourselves first seeing that we have been those who benefited from the kindness and mercy sending your son Jesus Christ because you loved us and Christ gave up his life for us because he loved us he died in our place as our penal substitute as our atoning sacrifice the one who takes away guilt and sin so that all who trust and believe in him will not perish 
but will be saved. Father, thank you for the Holy Spirit who works to convict our hearts and to help us to see Jesus Christ as the true Messiah. And thank you, Father, for the work of the Holy Spirit who regenerates us, brings us from spiritual death to spiritual life. Not for just so that we can be saved, but so that we might glorify and honor you in the life we live here, walking in obedience before you using every day we have to bring you pleasure and to exalt your name. Father, I pray for First Baptist Owasso. I pray that we don't just have the appearance of godliness yet lack its power. Crush us if that is true of us. Father, I believe that you are doing a work here with us. And you are purifying your bride. And that means you're purifying us. And you're providing for us. May we rest in you. Jesus' name.